Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 15th chapter. Glory to you, o Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall seek what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Hallelujah. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Beware of pessimism, even from your pastor, especially from your pastor. Pessimism accomplishes nothing, hopes for nothing, and lives for nothing. You do not want to look back at the end of your life and think, my, how much more I could have done if only I had not been so pessimistic. Pessimism and its more diabolical cousin, cynicism, is soul-killing and remarkably easy to fall into. In fact, I would suggest that it is something of a default position. For why are we so pessimistic and cynical? Because we expect things to go badly, right? And, you know, given enough time in a fallen world, pretty much everything will go badly, so I, I guess that would justify your cynicism. But I'm reminded of what we tell our kids on the baseball field, you know, when things go terribly wrong. You've had a bad play, or someone made a bad throw, or there was some bad <clears throat> umpiring. Hey, you have to put it behind you. It's over. You have to think about the next thing, the next play. What do you have to do right now? While believing that you'll win a baseball game will not ensure that you'll win, if you believe that you're going to lose, it definitely puts you much closer to losing. Christians are the inheritors of many incredible promises, but I think we often forget or ignore that. These promises, they, they should make us the most positive and hopeful people in the world. But we're also keen social observers because we have to engage with the world. We have to engage in public. We have a command to love our neighbors. We have a, a worldview that we want to promote. We have a commission to go and make disciples. And so we're concerned about our ability to be fully Christian out there in the public. And whenever we think we might be losing our rights to exist or thrive, 
or promote, well, we start to get a little pessimistic or skittish or cynical. So we're always looking for where we fit in. And whenever these changes in the culture come about, we get nervous and we can get mired in negative thought, even though we believe that we are the possessors of private promises from God. And that's a distinction that we need to be careful to try to avoid. The idea that, well, privately we believe our life of faith offers us promise, but publicly, who knows? I think if we compartmentalize our life of faith in such a way, it's really already an admission of defeat. Unless our lives or our livelihoods are at stake, we should not only see the promises of our faith as private victories, but public victories as well. What I mean by that is that Jesus, when he makes promises in the scripture, he doesn't say, oh, well, this promise is only for you personally. It's only for your personal faith life. He doesn't mitigate his promises in such a way. So why should we? We should be hopeful about the good that our faith will do and can do in the world. So beware of pessimism, even from your pastor, especially from your pastor or pastors. And I think about all of that because our gospel lesson this morning, it is a gospel lesson that is full of promises, but promises we can easily skip over. We just read them quickly and we, we move on. But I'd like to look at three promises that are explicit in our gospel lesson this morning. The first is that every branch on the vine that is Jesus Christ will bear fruit. Now, what does that fruit look like? It could take on many, many forms. A fruitful life could look like a lot of different things. We recently watched a, a Netflix documentary. It was on uh, true love. It essentially followed old people around that have been married for a long time. And this isn't just one example, perhaps, of a fruitful life. But in this case, it was a couple that had been married for 60 years. They were celebrating their 60th anniversary. Uh, they, they were re-upping uh, re their vows. They had six children. They had a lovely farm and, and farming business. In, in many respects, it was an ordinary life, but you could certainly see that it had borne much fruit. And they were uh, 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 devout Christians as well, and that certainly comes through in the telling of their story. So just as one example, this isn't the only way, again, we bear fruit, is in family life or marriage or so forth. But if it's a good example of a kind of fruitful life that we want, then trust in Christ. Well, how does being a Christian help you bear that kind of fruit? What, what do those two things have to do with one another? Well, let me make a list. Forgiven people forgive other people. That means that in the wake of Christ in your life, you will have more peaceful and harmonious relationships. I'd like to think that's important fruit. We have hope that there is more to life than eating and working and sleeping. We love and serve our neighbor through work and volunteering. And we even have explicit commands to look out for our neighbor and love them. Christians have a strong work ethic. 
because we actually really do believe that sloth is sinful. And Christians are taught to guard their hearts and to guard their marriages, which provides for strong families. That's, of course, the foundation for all civilization, all societies. If you really put all that together, I mean, that really does sound like a lot of fruit, doesn't it? It does to me. Those might be all ordinary things, and yet from life on this vine that is Christ, that is a lot of fruit that has been born. Now, the next promise, we might have, it might have just skipped right by it. I usually do in this chapter. It might even sound a little strange. Jesus says, you have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. That's the third verse of our reading. What does he mean by that? You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken. Well, I think the meaning, which of course I don't think is just limited to those apostles, but can safely be extrapolated to all Christians, is that we really are cleansed by the word of Christ. It's just that simple. For those of us with a conscience, those of us who are convicted of sins that we have committed, those of us worried about the wrong that we have done in the sight of a holy God? Well, this is a powerful promise. It is Christ saying that if he won't judge you, then no one else has the right to either. You are free from the shame and guilt of past sins, secret sins, and convicting sins. When Jesus says that you are part of his vine, nothing can tear you away from it, not even your sins. You are cleansed by his word. When Jesus says you're forgiven, you really are. One of the reasons I think that the Christian church is in numerical decline, at least the visible church, it's because of shame that is becoming so widespread. As sin is more easily encountered and more secretly lived out, the church is edged out. People believe that they can't go back to church because it's too late. They're too deep in sin. But Jesus says, no, you can be and will be cleansed by the word. That is his promise. And so may God convict those who are afraid of him to return to him instead. Now, the third promise, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this. I'm so glad that we've had the leadership and the participation of an explicit prayer ministry, at least a more intentional prayer ministry here at First Lutheran. We forget, I think, that Jesus promises many times that he really will answer our prayers. Does our pessimism keep us from being bold in our life of prayer? Do we not even bother to believe anymore that Jesus can really affect change in the world? Healings can occur. Our enemies can be defeated. Indeed, we will often believe that we are outnumbered. But that is rarely the case. But again, that's that old pessimism showing its ugly head. Change in society is usually made by a small but loud and committed minority. 
Headlines are generated not by majority views, but by the loudest voices. Germany was not a majority Nazi state. Russia was not a majority Bolshevik state, at least not early on, of course. In fact, they lost many elections, but through strong-arm tactics, they took control. America is not a majority woke state either, and yet Christians often feel sort of persecuted by those who advocate those ideas. And somewhere along the way, the vast numbers of us who generally just want to be left alone, we stayed quiet. And Christians believe in the sovereignty of God to be sure we don't want to be dour fatalists, but we should still ask in the wake of changes in society, in the wake of very loud minorities, we should be asking God for that which we wish. And Jesus says our prayers will be answered. So don't be a pessimist. Believing that all is lost, that's the first tactic of the enemies of God. And yes, in case I wasn't clear, Nazis and Bolsheviks and some in the woke community are the enemies of God. They're not promoting peace and love and justice, but often bear power and classism. But they haven't won the day. They're just for now exposing that we are too afraid to make a public case for the God of the Bible. So when you're tempted to be a pessimist, remember the promises in texts like this one. You will be made clean. Your prayers will be answered. The vine dresser will never forsake you. And you will bear fruit. Amen.